on this episode of The James Quandall Show. The correct blessing to graduates is find out what God's other children need you to do. Do that and learn to love it. Reverse it. Don't do what you love. Learn to love what you must do. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, known widely as America's rabbi, is a noted rabbinic scholar, best-selling author and TV host. He is president of the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, author of America's Real War, Thou Shall Prosper, and other bestsellers. He's a frequent guest on Fox News, Wall Builders Radio, and Glenn Beck TV. He hosts his own popular radio and podcast programs with audiences worldwide. With his wife, Susan, he hosts the weekly television show, Ancient Jewish Wisdom, on TCT Television Network, pairing his inheritance as a descendant of a multi-generational rabbinical family with his background in science and business. He teaches ancient Jewish wisdom in an unparalleled manner. I just really think the business community should read this book because they shouldn't feel guilty about being in the business community. And I just feel like there's so much guilt with CEOs and executives and small business owners And then they say things like, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I run the small business. It's quite successful. I'm doing really well. My customers love me. But, you know, what I really love is being able to, you know, help the people in my community. Yeah. Um, Look, the guilt is very widespread. Nobody criticizes the amount of money we pay to an NFL quarterback because everybody says, you know, there's no way I could do what he does. I mean, Even if the ball landed in my hands, I wouldn't be able to do what he does. And so, yeah, you know, meanwhile, there's uh, 20,000 people in the stands. So, yeah, I get why he makes the big money. But then comes the uh, CEO, and uh, he's got the corner office at the top, and he makes the big money. And everybody looks and says, well, you know, I could do that. Do you know that he gets paid 50 times more than the janitor gets paid, or 100 times, or 1,000? You know, as if that's relevant information. People have no idea. Uh, people don't understand. And and I'm not saying it's easy to understand because money is complex. Money is not even tangible. Money is uh, a spiritual construct that only has meaning uh, in the minds of people. There isn't anything else. Money is uh, is 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 very very difficult to understand. You know, I had a, a funny uh, encounter. I was in Atlanta and I was visiting with a man who'd started a very big national, that was now a big national company, and we were chatting. And his, head, his, office, uh, his office headquarters was right next to the first store he opened of his, of his company. I thought it'd be interesting at one point, because here's a guy who's really started at zero and built up a phenomenal business. I said to him, how would you answer the question that uh, everybody walking on the sidewalks down there is probably thinking to themselves, and that is, why do you make the big dollars? What justifies the money you make? He immediately responded, he said, um, <laughs> because I work my butt off. <laughs> I stood up and I walked towards him and I said, please come here to, to join me. Came to the window and uh, it wasn't hard to spot you know, we must have been on like the 20th floor or something. It wasn't hard to find a uh, a bus going by. And I pointed at the bus and I said, you see that bus? There's a man driving that bus. You think you work harder than he does? You don't think he works his butt off? Long silence. 
I said, so you haven't explained to me, you know, why you make millions and he makes 60 grand a year if he's lucky. I waited. The, the silence got uncomfortable. And then uh, he said, well, is there an answer? And this is a thoughtful guy. If he thought that there may not be an answer and that therefore, if there's no answer, it means he's not justified in getting that. And therefore, everyone's right to feel envious and resentful towards him. So I said, yeah, there is. And we, I walked to the window in the other wall. And I said, look down over there. And we looked at his, uh, at his store. And I said, um, how many people are working in the store right now? And he said, well, that's easy because I can see the employee parking lot. And I'm going to assume one person per car. And so he says, so uh, there's 40 people, 42 people in the store right now, workers. I said, how many customers? He looked at the customer parking lot and his practiced eye very quickly. He's obviously done this many times. He told me exactly how many cars there were. He said, how many people do you think are in each car? I said, well, you know, let's, let's say one as well. And he said, so uh, we've got about 300 people, customers in the store right now. So I said, so now there are 340 people whose lives you are improving. I don't think anybody forced them. There were no guns involved. They went there voluntarily because they would, knew they'd find what they need. And the people who work there are not being held at gunpoint. So they're happily there. 340 people whose lives are being impacted because of you. And I said, now let's multiply that by the number of stores. And I said, so at this moment, at this very moment, nearly 12,000 people are having their lives improved by you. That's why you make the money. Yeah. And what did he say at, at, to that? Um, we became good friends. We, we, we connected. Yeah. Well, he, was, he was blown away. It's just yeah. so uncommon, right? Because he feels guilty about making so much money, wrongfully so, because he's helping so many people. And I was one of those people working in a store. I worked in retail for almost 20 years. Um, the customers that would come in became like family. I, I knew their faces. I knew their names. I knew their children. I knew the things that were coming up in their lives. And we just built solid relationships. But... Without that guy, the CEO or the founder or the owner that took some risk to start the business in the first place, I never would have had that job. And those customers would have never had a place to go. It gets very serious, you see, because what do people who feel guilty, right? This CEO I was talking to, he felt very guilty until I gave him the answer. What do guilty people do? Well, they're, ash they're ashamed, right? They're ashamed. Therefore, they become uh, far-left liberals, and they encourage everything that uh, left-wing governments want to do, they become willingly complicit because it eases their feeling of guilt. So large handouts, uh, free this or free that, as if raising the minimum wage is going to improve people's lives. And uh, one thing after another, that's a huge problem. Another thing they do is they become ardent and aggressive spokesman for um, environmental causes, because that also makes you feel pious and virtuous. The head of Blackstone Investments, one of the very largest capital companies in the world, recently issued a statement saying they were going to start coming down on companies 
that didn't put you know sustainable and environmental issues first, which is incredible because uh, the right way to invest, you know, particularly if you're responsible for other people's retirement funds, the right way to invest is in the company returning the 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 best. Uh, dividend most reliably, so you increase the the rate of return. It's not about doing good in the world or making the world a better place or making sure the oceans don't rise. That's not your job. But a person who feels profound guilt at how much he's making can't help himself but wanting to do good. People wanting to do good are mostly responsible for the tears of the world. So if the CEO there, he he has a a lot of power over his organization and where the profits go and what organizations they work with and the initiatives that they they take charge of. But through that guilt, what's a more positive way that that CEO themselves can make change versus changing the way their organization works? So how can that one person do something? He's doing it by running his business. He doesn't have to do anymore. There's thousands of people are benefiting because of what he does. One of the questions I, I I would like to pose to to our listeners is, who has done more good for more people, the late saintly Mother Teresa of Calcutta or Bill Gates? Definitely Bill Gates. No question about it. Not even the slightest question. So why do we look at people like Mother Teresa? And she's great, and we need people like her. But why do we look at her as as it's more honorable the, how she's helping people versus how Bill Gates is helping people or other business owners? You, you're exactly right. And, and the way that question came to me a little while ago uh, was a woman who came to talk to me and consult with me because she was so terribly upset. What had happened was um, she'd herself undergone radiation treatment and she lost her hair. You know, she was uh, quite rightly, she wanted to do something about that. And she found a line of beautiful wigs made somewhere, uh, I, I don't remember where in the world, and she set up an arrangement to be able to, I mean, she she bought a few, and then, you know, she looked absolutely gorgeous in them, and she realized that this was a service she could provide for, for other women in, this, in a similar situation. It's a, unfortunately a very, very common problem. She even worked out a, a relationship with Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute in New York, and she became the supplier of uh, women's wigs for women who were losing their hair. She did very, very well indeed. And she, the reason she came to see me was that uh, she got attacked by someone who'd been a longtime friend and who I think was beginning to feel a little what our German friends call schadenfreude. They, they were a little bit jealous of her financial success. And they said to her, it's really terrible that you're making money on these sick women. Uh, you should be doing it as a charity. And it shocked her. And she came to see me because she wanted to know, is this, is this true? Is she doing, should she not be making money? How quickly did you say no? It took about 11 milliseconds. <laughs> but of course, it took considerably longer to explain to her why a business is probably doing more good for people than any charity is. Well, you don't hear that anywhere else. That, I think, is issue number one. Is- it's simple economics. And, and, uh, and just think about it, James. If, if uh, you know, like any large foundation, you had a large sum of money. Let's, I mean, let's not even talk about the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I wonder if it'll still be called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, come to think of it. Side issue. But um, 
uh, if let's imagine that that you had um, a reasonable figure, ten thousand dollars to distribute to charity every week. Do you think in the next five minutes you could come up with ways to do that that helped and didn't harm? Speaking of giving, I try to 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 give, and it's it is hard to find places to put the money that because I have to do the research, I have to dig into the the IRS statements, I have to look at who's on the board, how much they're paying their employees, where the money's going. It, it's not easy, and yeah, and we like helping individual people. Um, who who need help, but to do so that in a way that doesn't hurt their dignity, that doesn't corrode their self-respect, to to do it in a way that um, I mean, I'll t- when it comes to organizations, I'll tell you very simple. I walk into any charity I, I, that Susan and I are giving to, uh, we like walking into. We want to see what the mood in the office is. If it looks like the post office, we never give a penny. If it looks like FedEx then we give. In other words, are people lazing around? Do they meander through the hallways? Do they have all the time in the world? Or are they busy and and pressured and and stressed? That's a fantastic barometer. That is the only way, that's the only type of place that we're interested in helping. And when you walk into a place where it does feel, you know, the post office is a, is a funny example. I, I don't like going there. And I think uh, anybody can relate to that. But, you know, the UPS store, the FedEx store, they make you feel great to go there. It's unbelievable. But, you know, um, you can't get that from their, their bank statements. You, you won't, can only get it by interacting with people. It's actually very hard to give money away without causing harm. It's very hard. Now, it, it takes an effort and you have to do it because I'm obliged to give away at least 10% of my money. So I have to. It's time consuming. It's not easy. I know that if I invest in a successful company, I know human lives are going to be improved. That's easy. Through um, tithing, can it go to a business or should it go to a, a charity? No, the only way it can go to a business is if you are trying to help somebody give him a leg up by setting him up in a business. That that works. So that's the old the old adage, don't give him a fish, teach out of fish. So we've got this shame. We've got the the CEO who feels embarrassed. Or it, let's just talk about the person with with the wig business. Um, actually, my wife uh, in, in an internship, she worked at a hospital up in Michigan, and they had this uh, this cancer uh, center, which is now it's since been closed. They found out they couldn't make any money there, unfortunately. But they had this um, wigs off. Uh, when when someone was going to lose their hair, it was buzz off cancer. And rather than feeling really guilty and ashamed or embarrassed or whatever about losing their hair, they made it fun. They had a, they had salon people come in. They made it like really exciting. And then they had the wigs, and they made these people feel really good and dignified, and 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 fantastic. Personally, I I wouldn't care if that's a charity or a for profit business. It was making people feel really good about themselves in a time where typically. For whatever reason, they're embarrassed and, and ashamed and they feel guilty. Feel terrible. And it, it, it's a huge kindness to provide this. And, and that's exactly what this woman who came to see me uh, had been doing in a number of in, in cancer places, which is, you know, setting up fashion shows and sh- uh, sh- just basically making a sense of camaraderie among the women impacted. But why is it that, going off topic a little bit from business, why is it that when we go through something like cancer, we feel like we did something wrong and now are, are have cancer. I don't know necessarily that people feel that we did something wrong, but they do feel embarrassed about it. And it's the same reason that we feel 
um, so uncomfortable about death. I mean, what could be no more natural and more normal, right? I've been told on numerous times that homosexuality is perfectly natural. You know, keep your hat on. Uh, you know, rats do it. So, so you know, cool, cool the jets and and realize if you know rats do it, people do it. What's the big deal? And my response to that is rats die, people die. So why you make such a big fuss when Aunt Agatha goes, put her out in a plastic bag in the alley for the city to pick up on Tuesday? Why are you making such a fuss about it? If the if the criterion is just what's natural, then nothing could be more natural than dying. Well, if if it was just what's natural, there'd be no reason to do any charity. We would keep everything for ourselves, and we would work not. Work. Yes, if it's all a matter of nature, then law of the jungle applies. But but I said the point is that uh, deep down inside of us, in a way that is not found in orangutans. Uh, or in camels or cows or kangaroos, but it is found in people, is a deep awareness that um, we have an eternity within us. And it's our souls that are eternal, not our bodies. But none that, when the body goes, it's terrible. It is a shock, even though we know it's happening and it's inevitable, perfectly natural, perfectly normal, but it shouldn't. We are touched by the finger of God, darn it. We, we, sh we shouldn't. We shouldn't have to deal with it. It's similar to that uh, with why so many people do understandably feel bad about being ill, that many people like keeping, keeping it to themselves. You know, I'm not talking about chronic hypochondriacs who, who just delight in sharing their latest malady. <laughs> I, was once, I was once at a dinner party and uh, it devolved into that. And, um, you know, people started vying with each other for the most gruesome injury and the most the most bizarre illness and and the the most rigorous medicine routine <laughs> i couldn't tell you and eventually i stood up and I, I said ladies and gentlemen if the very next person who says anything about their bodies i'm out i'm sorry but i can't stand this anymore <laughs> uh, we are souls we are not bodies let me hear about things you're thinking about let me at worst let me hear things that you are emotions you're feeling Stop with your bodies already. I'm not interested. Most of us realize that, um, you know, that, that, that we were created as, as God created us as perfect human beings with our terrible flaws and failures, but we certainly weren't created to, to be ill. And so I think we do feel a little, a little uneasy. We don't, we'd rather not share that. You know, I, I was talking on my show last week and we were talking about friendship. And uh, I did a survey of the listeners in the audience and there was seven buckets and the two lowest buckets and there was faith and family and financial and future fun. And the lowest two buckets were fitness and friends. These are CEOs, executives, small business owners, entrepreneurs, people that are out there really working hard and making a difference and helping a lot of people. And for some reason, friends was their lowest score that they had. Um, I, I'm assuming you're familiar with my 5F program. I'm, I'm actually not. So can you tell me about it? Um, it's just funny you should, you should say that. On our website, we offer a free ebook called the holistic you it's so it, it was it was it was so interesting hearing what you were just saying james because what we um have laid out there are you've heard of the five books of moses right yes and you know why why five not six or seven or eight um and even the ten commandments isn't really ten commandments it's five sets of principles about relationship and so number one 
that's why they're on two tablets, right? It's interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know. Are you, are you a Bible-centric person at all or not? Yes, I'm a Christian, and um, I and I'm very familiar with the the pairs of of uh, for self. Okay, and then so for that's others. again something that I teach, which is that uh, throughout the um, uh, the Hebrew Bible, do you know how many times the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Commandments? How many? Three times. Do you know how many times they are referred to as the two tablets? Probably way more. 32 times. (laughs) Wow. So obviously the two-ness is more important than the ten-ness. So what are your five uh, Fs? Well, it's even even more interesting, I think, because you could just imagine that, um, you know, God is talking to Moses and said, okay, so number four, put down... Um, observe the Sabbath day, da 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 da. Okay, fine, done it. Five, honor your father and mother because etc. Okay, Moses is busy chipping this into the stone; it's all looking good. And then God says to him, "Now take another piece of stone, and we're going to do number six. <laughs> and Moses said to God, "Hey, Lord, you know I'm 80 years old. It was hard enough coming up this mountain, going down, holding one tablet. I'm, I'll be lucky not to break my neck." Going down holding two tablets is insane. Why don't I reduce the font size and let's get all ten on this one? Or can I just put it on the back of the of the of the? Well, let's flip it over. <laughs> we'll put it on the back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, God says, you know, take another tablet. Why? Because the whole point is there are only five, and there's two examples of each: a heavenly example and an earthly example. It almost looks like a cross, a vertical line, to reflect relationships upwards and a horizontal line to reflect relationships on our plane. So the first one is, um, I, you know, I am the Lord, your God, etc. Uh, parallel to that one is um, uh, thou shalt not murder. The principle here is that if you cannot accept the existence of the other person as an inviolable reality, then you have no relationship. A test was done a little while ago to see what group, what dem- demographic in America have the highest self-esteem. And the answer turned out to be convicted murderers. Makes sense if you think about it, right? You need a considerable self-esteem to wipe out somebody's life because they annoy you or, or irritated you or made you, you know, were inconvenient for you. So the first principle is recognizing the right of that. So God says, look, I'm here. If that's a problem for you, we can't go any further. And on the human level, thou shalt not murder. If you can't acknowledge the other person's right to be there, Okay, well, uh, second one with respect to God is you can't relate to any other gods the way you relate to me. This is a unique, special relationship. Number seven on the other tablet is no adultery. In its purest form, it means I can't relate to any other woman exactly the same way I relate to my wife. But in more ap- general application, it means that um, in, in, in my sales practice, I mustn't develop a pattern that is so canned that it's what every single prospect hears from me. I felt like in sales, I built relationships so quickly. I have been told I just have a, a, a genuine, honest face. And I felt like I almost had a power that I had to be careful when I was selling where I could say, you need this, this, and this. And they would just say, okay. So I had to be twice as careful to just really listen to that person and find out exactly what they needed, not what I felt they needed, but what they actually needed. Because no, that's right. I mean, I I was once at a fundraiser for a, a politician who decided he was going to run for president, 
and I was I was leaned on. I, I I definitely wouldn't have gone, but I was leaned on by a colleague, and so I went. And I thought it was a total waste of time because this guy stood no chance of being president. And um, I was introduced to him, and his eyes lit up. He held my hand, and he asked me questions about me. I was so taken up with this guy. I thought, you know what? He actually might make it. What's more, I'm not sure I wouldn't vote for him. And um, and then after a few moments, a very um, uh, what I thought was lovely interaction, uh, I could see his eyes flitting around the room while he was talking to me. And in a few moments, he introduced himself and walked over to a much more promising prospect. And I thought it would be interesting. I'm going to drift along and follow behind. And I wasn't horrified to discover that he used exactly the same words on that person that he'd used on me to the word. This was a canned thing. And to you know show how little I understand of these things, um, uh, that November, he won the election. Yeah, so I read that in your, in your book, and it was a shocking story to me because I have been told by so many people that that person was the most friendly and honest and down-to-earth person, and they'd sit with you, and they would talk to you, and they wouldn't look around the room and make eye You know which politician it was. Uh, yeah, it was Bill Clinton. Yes, it was. So when I read that in your book, I go, wow, that is a completely different perspective I haven't heard before. Uh, well, look, let me tell you. Let me tell you, had I not been obnoxious enough to walk over to the second person he was talking to, I would have gone away thinking the same thing. Well, that's where that phrase trust but verify comes in. So you, you, you know, you, you trust it. Oh, he seems like a genuinely good okay, person. He was adulterating the relationship. And so that's principle number two and so on. And so we had, you know, we had more time. It was three, four and five. But uh, again, I have something on my website that explains that. That's the idea of five. And similarly, uh, the five Fs is based on the same thing. The five Fs that make up the totality of one's existence. If you work on these five areas of relationship and they're all in good shape, then you should have two bald spots on the carpet next to your bed where your knees go every single morning as you give gratitude or every single night as you give gratitude for your life. Because if these five Fs are in good shape. You've got not only no grumbles, but you've got every reason to be hugely grateful. Uh, the first F, and there's in no order, right? Uh, the way I lay them out is on the circumference of a circle, and then I join each to to each to the other. Each one is adjacent. One side is to two, and then I join them with lines to the other three. The order isn't important. None of these is more important than the other. These are all five things you have to work on all at the same time. Fitness, friendships, family, finance, and faith. Very few people realize that faith, uh, you need like almost like oxygen. It's an absolutely essential part. And um, most people believe that um, secularism is, is an option. It's just another way of living. Uh, you know, that would be like uh, like somebody deciding that um, sex is an option. You know, some people, I, you know, very few people choose to be celibate. Faith isn't an option. It's actually a needed part of life. And it, it's not easy. It's not as if my dad gave me faith tablets when I was a kid and so I suddenly have faith. I had to work very, very hard in my case in order to to develop a relationship with God. It happens to be necessary 
It, it can be private. I'm not even saying it necessarily has to find fulfillment in church or synagogue, but um, <clears throat> it's one of the five. I love how in your book you you say that you are a practicing Jew. That just really, really stuck with me because I've sort of had this um, this idea that um, through faith you you start to want to build knowledge and you start to read and you start to learn and you start to understand, but then there becomes a point where you need to move from knowledge. Okay, I have enough knowledge now to know what's good and what's bad or that I, I should love God and I should love my neighbor. But then where do you move on from learning about knowledge to learning about obedience? And I've been in so many Bible studies, and we talk about knowledge. We talk about maps. We talk about where people were. We talk about how much things weighed and what the translations of the currency was. And I go, well, like, where's the obedience? Where's actually where yeah. I know that I need to do this? I don't need to be convinced any further, but now how do I actually go out and do that in the world? That's what right. I want to learn in a Bible study. Like, that's a study I would love to be a part of, right? Yeah, right. Um, but you said practicing Jew. and I go, By the way, if you would like to be part of that study, then check out my scrolling through scripture on my website. The first unit is the first 34 verses of Genesis, which lays the foundation for everything. And so I will put the notes uh, for this show over at my website, quandall.com slash Lapin. That's quandall.com slash Lapin, and that's L-A-P-I-N. And I will link to your website. I will link to the five Fs. I'll link to your scrolling through scripture and anything else that we talk about. I'll make sure it's in there so the listener can um, make sure that they link to that. So with your five Fs, there's, I feel like we could talk the rest of the time just on this because it's just like a, a manual where if any one of these things is in the toilet, the others are going to be pulled down because of it. You can't just be really good at one of these five Fs. You need to find the balance between all of them. James, the principle is that in any complex system, the trick is not the elements. The trick is the interface. What I mean by that is to say that um, if I invite you to come out for a drive in my new BMW, James, you got to see the Brembo brakes on this thing. And all I'm talking about is the brakes. And eventually, you know, you say, look, you know, Lappin, did you buy it only because of the brakes? And I say, uh, well, I, you know, I decided that uh, brakes are really important. And yeah, but what about an engine? You know, going is just as important as stopping. So I say, you know what? You're right. I'm selling this car. <laughs> What I'm going to do is um, I'm going to find out who makes the best engine. That turns out to be the 10-cylinder uh, engine they put in the Audi and the Bentley, 600 horsepower, and I grab it. Or it might be one of those uh, desert drag riders that they end up having a parachute shoot out the back. <laughs> <laughs> but then I say, now, who makes the best brakes? Well, Brembo, um, twin, Brembo uh, uh, quad caliper system. Okay, I'll buy the brakes. Who makes the best transmission? Well, Borg Warner's eight-speed um, is uh, the Velvet Glide is a fabulous transmission. Okay, you know who you know who makes the best seats? Uh, Ricaro in Italy, they make the best seats. I buy four of those, and then I get an auto engineer, and uh, I say, "Would you please put all this together? Uh, who makes the best body?" Well, actually, one of the best bodies of cars is the uh, Kia Cilantro. <laughs> and so I buy one of those. And I, and I lay all this out on my warehouse floor. 
I call my engineers and I say, guys, please assemble it because this will be the best car in the world. It's not true, is it? No. I don't think they could actually put it together if they tried. Even if they did, you know, the engine isn't matched to the transmission. The brakes aren't matched to the suspension. It doesn't work. Everything has to work together. This is like um, somebody saying, I'm going to focus on increasing my lung capacity. I'm not worried about muscular strength. I'm not worried about cardiac ability. I'm not worried about nutrition. I'm not worried about anything. All I'm focusing on is lung capacity. It's bizarre. It's not a way to work. Well, if you there's there's yeah there's a way you could do that, but you would be sacrificing your heart and other things to do it. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And so uh, this is what it is. Our lives in their totality are made up of friendships, family, faith, fitness, our physical bodies, and our finances. That's what makes us who we are. And have you noticed through speaking with people? There's one of these five that seems to be a larger opportunity than the others more often than not. Um, you know, everybody I find relates differently. There are some people, I mean, many people say, look, just teach me about the finance. I'm really not interested in faith. I'm not a religious person. I say, well, that's because you associate religion with the actual practices of whatever faith you tend to identify with. And so you might say you're not a Christian or you're not an Orthodox Jew or whatever it is. But um, when, I, when you say you're not religious, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. When you sell your services, would you rather I gave you seven bushels of wheat or $500? He says, I'll take the $500. So, well, in that case, you're a man of faith. The seven bushels of wheat you could turn into bread which is kind of useful for you and your family. The $500, all you can do is put it in a bank. You've got to have faith that the bank system works. You've got to have faith that the government is not eroding the value of your money by printing money and causing inflation. You've got to have faith that when you do need bread, somebody will accept that money and give you bread. You're a man of huge faith. Developing that faith and maintaining that faith is an essential part of doing business. Every single time you extend credit to a customer, that is an act of faith. That's why it's used to say on the currency, backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, faith is an essential part of that. Other people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't believe one should be interested in money. And I say, so you have uh, decided that the equation that poverty equals virtue is true. And then we have a conversation. But he was starting off saying, I'm interested in the faith and the family part. I'm not that interested in the money part. I said, well, in that case, is it okay with you if I double your fee? Because money is important to me and it's not important to you. So why shouldn't you give me more of yours? Money becomes real important real quick once you ask that question. Yeah, right. Exactly. So little by little, I, I do help people see that whether you like it or not, at first blush, all of the five Fs are of paramount importance to your development, success, and happiness as a human being. So I, I do want to talk about friendship a little bit because I just think that that's such a huge opportunity. What would you say about making friends? Like, how do you make friends in, in today's world? It's very interesting, James, because many, many uh, scholars, many business school professors, 
many writers have tried to come up with the most reliable correlation of financially successful people. You know, there are hundreds of books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, The Millionaire Next Door, um, The Richest Man in Babylon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I I read all those books, by the way. And they still still do not, they, they really, and this book, Thou Shall Prosper, it explains in a completely different way, and and it's it's life changing. Again, I'm not taking credit for the originality of Thou Shall Prosper. Uh, I'm afraid I have to give credit where it's due. You know, and by the way, all of those books that I mentioned, and and dozens and dozens of others, they all have value, and I've also read them, and I also got value out of them. But the one thing when you get right to the bottom, the simplest one thing. I'll tell you who popularized this idea was Malcolm Gladwell in The Tipping Point. And that was uh, the one reliable correlation is that people who make a lot of money, not people who inherited a lot of money, not people who won the lottery, but people who make a lot of money all have an extraordinarily high number of friends. And that's really important. Now, a friend, I should emphasize, is not somebody who friends you on Facebook, for God's sake. You know, let's make that absolutely clear. Uh, I would exchange, oh, I'd say the exchange rate is easily, I'll, I'll give away a thousand Facebook friends for one real life friend. Easy. How do you know if it's a real life friend? If he returns your call within 24 hours, he returns your phone call, even though you didn't say what you wanted to speak about, and you don't owe him money because people you owe money to will return your call. No, not relatives, not people you owe money to, you know, not creditors and not um, uh, not family. Yeah. If they return your call in 24 hours, they're your friend. How many of them have most people got? Not as many as you think. And one of the exercises I encourage people to do is actually lock yourself at, at your desk for an hour or two and list all your friends. There's good news and good news. The good news is it won't take you as long as you think. Well, I should say the bad news is that uh, that's because you don't have as many friends as you think. We we all tend to think we've got hundreds of friends. I bet you haven't. Yeah, so uh, I did an experiment a couple of years ago and deleted my Facebook, deleted my Instagram, deleted my Twitter, and I didn't just deactivate it. I deleted them. And it was kind of surprising. And the reason I say it's surprising was I didn't really miss very many of these people. Because the friends, the people I actually now call my friends, I would see them in the real world, or I would exchange phone calls with them. And I had this idea that I had all these friends, thousands of them, and it wasn't real. And do you know, when I deleted my social media, I doubled down on those relationships of the people that were calling me, and I returned their calls. Because... Now I realize, wow, these are, these are my true friends. I want to make sure that I keep these people. Yeah, exactly. And so the general rule in life is anything you fail to measure, you cannot improve in. So if you want to lose weight, you'd better be sure you have a scale and you better record your weight. If you want to make more money, please learn how to work with financial statements. Make sure you know you know what a cash flow statement looks like. Make sure you know what a payables and a receivables. Make sure you know what a balance sheet is. Make sure you know what a profit and loss statement is. It's not hard to learn. There is no excuse, particularly if you are interested in increasing your revenue, which is my focus. 
you need to be able to, to measure it. And similarly, make a list of how many friends you have. And now pledge to yourself to add one a month. Make a new friend one harder than it sounds, but it's very important. So what do you have any advice? I mean, you did say that the, the measurement of a friend is if they'll give you a call back in 24 hours. So that would lend me to believe to keep your friends, you should make contact with them and, and yes, continue. Yes, of course, you have to nurture friendships. But how do you have any recommendations for nourishing friendships, especially in sort of a digital age where a lot of these people aren't down the road? You know, you can tell a lot about a culture by um, what words that culture has many words for in their language. So uh, as everybody knows, in the Inuit languages, there are many words for snow, obviously, because, you know, it's life and death. Uh, for me, I could care less, but for skiers, skiers have three or four words for snow. Inuits have many, many, many more. In Hebrew, there are many words for friend. And one of them is the word based on the word obligation. Do you remember the old, uh, there was a, a terrible movie years and years and years ago. And I'm not even sure I actually ever saw it, but it was um, an utterly forgettable phrase. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Okay. It, I think it was called I think it was called Love Story, actually. Ali McGraw dies at the end of it and it's a real tearjerker. Don't worry about it. This is not a movie you need to watch. But um the phrase stuck around for decades. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Uh, it's complete and utter bilge water. Of course you say you're sorry more to the person you love than to anyone else. Secondly, friendship is based on obligation. Now, you might say, well, it doesn't seem so. I mean, friends, you know, you're just friends. Well, this is the secret. This is where ancient Jewish wisdom turns out to be so useful. I never would have guessed myself. It would never would have occurred to me that friendship has anything to do with obligation. But it does. And so you ask about how to extend and develop new friends. It's simple. Create obligations. So what that means is I find a way to do somebody a favor. Now, he will feel an obligation to return that favor. Before you know where you are, you're friends. You know, I heard an interesting uh, a persuasion exercise, and I, and I thought it was interesting. I'm curious what you think. Basically, you, you do someone a favor, and then they say, oh, I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much. And you just say, oh, no problem. It was nothing. Instead, this person advised you to say, no problem. That's what friends do. I know if we were in similar circumstances, you would do the same for me, thereby creating that ob future obligation. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to trivialize what you did. You know, it's, it's a sort of homespun wisdom. Um, you know, what do you do when you move into a new neighborhood? You go and borrow a cup of sugar from the neighbor. Yeah. Not because you needed it, but because now you, you have a chance to talk. And then you've got to give the sugar back a few days later. And it's another chance. The creation and discharge of obligations on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And I, I think that explains a lot of times why so many friends come from hobbies and activities. Because whether you're playing chess or tennis, which are two of my hobbies, you meet at the same place with the same people at the same times. That's right. And there's an obligation there as well. Because... You have to go. If there was an arrangement that you're playing tennis on Wednesday, then that's what you do, even if you don't feel like it. And then uh, the friend, maybe not a friend, but your, your sparring partner in chess or tennis, 
you say, oh, how, how's your wife or how are your kids? And that, that uh, obligation relationship starts to deepen and you start to know more about them outside of the court or outside. Oh, of absolutely. The and then when he says, you know, my, my kid's crazy about baseball, uh, what you do is you, you go along and you score a few tickets for a good game and send them over and say, I know, I know your son would like to watch this game. I thought you'd like some tickets. That's, again, creating an obligation. It's, it's what nurtures a friendship. So do you send uh, thank you notes to people? Of course, only handwritten. Yeah, and I'm curious, how often do you get thank you notes back? Well, I'm very fortunate. I engage with a number of people on, on a meaningful level. I coach a small number of people on an ongoing basis. So I, I actually do get, I do get handwritten letters. I get handwritten letters from people who are studying, uh, scrolling through scripture with me. Uh, so actually, I, I get a lot, and I, I can't throw them away. You can't imagine what a storage problem I have. I literally cannot throw them away. Yeah. Well, you could digitize them, but then it wouldn't – it'd be different. It'd be because it doesn't – not exactly the same. It doesn't mean as much if they it's send like, you a text. It's like throwing away my $3 million original Rembrandt painting and replacing it with a digital image in my computer. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same, is it? So I, I do have a, a couple things from the book – that I wanted to touch on a little more. And you did talk about self-esteem with the uh, murderer, how they, they have the most self-esteem in the world because they feel that they have the choice. Not self-respect, self-esteem. self-esteem. Yeah, so, but you did say self-respect versus self-esteem and how we yeah, should right. be shooting for self-respect instead of self-esteem. So can you talk a little bit about self-respect and how you can kind of grow that? Self-respect um, is based on uh, I am not the result of lightning striking an amino acid molecule and turning into primitive protoplasm that through a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution resulted in plumbers and proctologists and rabbis. No, I'm here because I was touched by the finger of God. And that means I'm not nothing. I'm not an insignificant speck in a remote and forgotten corner of the universe. My little pinky finger is more important than a galaxy. I can't not use the talents and the time that the good law gave me. And if I do all of that, and I should have self-respect. Now, that doesn't mean arrogance. It means self-respect. It means I take myself and my life seriously. And if you are my friend and you don't take my life and my work seriously, then I'm going to probably drift away. I probably won't want to hang around you because I have self-respect. Uh, self-esteem is just pumping yourself up with no foundation, nothing underlying it. America at the moment, you know, before 1960, we routinely scored the highest in the world in math and science. America now scores behind Albania. We're like way down towards the bottom. But funnily enough, we score at the top in self-esteem. And so, in other words, we teach school kids to be total ignoramuses, but to feel really good about that. That's interesting. And that, and that kind of lends, when you're sort of starting out a, a business, it's, I've found it's hard, like with my podcast or my writing um, or my advertising agency, the, comparing to other writers and podcasters and ad agencies and going, wow, look at what they're doing. They're, they've got uh, Daniel Appen on the show. I'm so uh, 
excited for them. No, a lot of times I say, wow, I wish I had that or I want that or sort of that envy or um, almost jealousy sometimes. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's hard. And then I, I feel guilty. I'm like, why am I jealous or envious? Like, I should be grateful or happy that they have that. Like, that's really cool. Like, doesn't mean that I can't invite uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin on my show too. And he might say yes. But you, you wrote in here about replacing envy. And replacing it with empathy and compassion instead. And I love that, but it's really hard to actually do. Much easier to tell people what the thing is they have to do than to actually do it. Yeah, I love that. And I could write it on my wall and say, hey, don't be envious and don't be jealous and instead be empathetic and compassionate. And I could look at it every single day while I'm brushing my teeth. It doesn't mean I'm actually going to do anything, but because it's very, very hard. The secret to that is to act the way you would act if you already felt the way you wished you felt. Can you repeat that? The secret to changing an emotion like envy or even dislike of somebody, all you've got to do is you've got to start acting the way you would act if you already felt the way you wished you felt. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so easy to, in, in the example of of, of someone you dislike. That makes so much sense. You don't like somebody. Uh, I, I say this a lot. Oh, you don't like them. Well, you should get to know them better. Because if you got to know them better, you would probably actually like them. Or maybe get them a gift. Find out they, their kid likes baseball. And that's exactly right. Giving a gift to somebody you don't like has two great advantages. One, it baffles them. And number two, it changes the way you feel about them. Yeah. Uh, our emotions follow our actions, not the other way around, contrary to what people think. Yeah, if if you're envious about somebody, behave towards that person the way you would behave if you were not. Mm -hmm. And I feel like being envious or jealous, meaning to God, because it's like saying, hey, there is not enough. You can't feed me and this other person. But truly, the scripture tells me that there's an abundance that God can feed all of us. You're eroding a little piece of yourself with that as well. Uh, you know, your envy eats you up. It doesn't hurt the subject of your envy at all. And then it becomes sort of like, oh, well, I'm going to compete against that podcast or blogger. I'm going to get more listeners or get other people on my show. When in reality, the smarter thing I think to do would be like, hey, just work with that person or side by yeah. side with that person if they're on a similar path or mission to you. Um, because sure. there, there's plenty mm -hmm. to go around for all of us. And yeah, right. um, do, you, do you think... One, this is a two-parter. Two Do you think that everyone should be rich? And then you, you talk about asking God for money and praying for a blessing, a, a financial blessing. And I'm, I'm curious. And I say don't, don't waste your time doing that. Don't waste your time doing that. Why is that? Because I don't know that, let me put it this way. Do I know that God wants us to have a great sex life? I wish I did, but unfortunately he has failed to inform me of his feelings on that. However, he did inform me that he wants every man to be exclusively dedicated to one woman. It certainly doesn't surprise me to discover that a good and loving God makes sure that people who follow that directive enjoy the greatest sensual pleasure that he made available to human beings. Does God want us to be rich? Unfortunately, he neglected to inform me. He overlooked it. He forgot to tell me whether he wants everyone to be rich. But what I do know is 
that he wants each one of us to be obsessively preoccupied with filling one another's needs and wants. And it doesn't surprise me that a good and loving God would arrange things in such a way that those who follow his directive receive the incredible blessing of financial abundance. In other words, and should everybody make more money this year than they made last year? Absolutely. How should they do it? Well, not by praying to God to give him more money. You know, when you pray to God for a Ferrari and you don't get one, it doesn't mean God didn't hear your prayer. It means he did hear your prayer. He said, no. Why Why on earth should he give you a Ferrari? What have you done lately? Yeah. And, you know, before we got on this uh, this call, I I prayed not that we would have a great call necessarily, but that I would listen well and that he would uh, prompt me with questions to ask and that I would take what I read in your book and create a conversation around it. Well, I can, I'm happy to tell you that uh, he blessed you. <laughs> well, you, you, uh, you, are a very, uh, you are a very prepared guest. It's almost like I'm not asking questions that you gave me, but you just, you just have fantastic uh, responses. But, you know, I believe that praying for, not praying to be rich or praying for God to give me money, but instead that God would bring me opportunities. That's right. We Jews don't pray, please, God, send me $600 so I can make my car payment. We say, please open my eyes to more of your children that need my services. Yes. And then... Then let me actually do a good job too. Like pray, I just pray that I can see my commitment. You know, through. I teach this all the time. the The dumbest thing you can ever tell a uh, a graduate is, "Well, you're going out into the world now. Find a way to do what you love doing, and you'll, you know, that'll be the best." I love boating. I'm yet to find anybody who'll pay me to go boating, fishing. Who's going to pay me to go fishing? Depends on how good you are. I mean, not you, very well. I, well, well, I'm actually okay at fishing. It's the catching part I'm not good at. And so, the correct blessing to graduates is find out what God's other children need you to do. Do that and learn to love it. Reverse it. Don't do what you love. Learn to love what you must do. Yeah, there's a fantastic book um, by. Uh, uh, Cal Newport, and it's so good they can't ignore you. And he basically talks about how you love work that you're good at. So if yes, you just get really, right. otherwise, why would there be people like why would someone be an executive assistant? That is a hard, hard job. And you're not in the limelight. You're not the highest paid person, but you see and help the person that you're supporting with so, so, so much that they could not really go on without you. But do you know why that people do that? For one, because they're so good at it that it's a it's their it's their reward. It's a time and talents thing. It's it's uh it's it's just amazing. Well, James, can I ask you a question? You may. So many times you read biographies or or uh, little uh, biographic sketches of somebody, and very often the interviewer says at the end, you know, and they're interviewing a, a local fire chief who's retiring you know, or a bus driver who's retiring. One of the questions I always say is, hey, if you had to do it again, you know, would you be a fireman again or would you be a bus driver again or whatever it is? What are the overwhelming majority of them answer? I think they say yes. Yes, I'll do exactly. Isn't that strange? Wouldn't you have thought that uh, some of them, you know, at least most of them would say, no, 
I I would really want to be this. You know, I'd be an astronaut. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that an astronaut. Or when I was a kid, I wanted to be a computer programmer. You know, because of the point you made, which is that after a lifetime of doing something professionally and competently and becoming really good at it, you do fall in love with what you do. It's not even about money at that point. It's just that I love doing this. And oftentimes, being very good at something and and does have more money come towards you. Um, but the people, or at least I, I can speak for myself, but the better I get at the skills that I'm working on, the less I worry about the money. It's just about working on the scale and getting better at that. I, the money is, it, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter as much. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy with what I have. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, it's it's really important. The the money is an outcome in that say all the time. I mean, you want to make sure that your revenue for the rest of this year is greater than for last year. Yeah, okay, fine. Don't think in terms, how do I make more money? Think, how can I serve other, more people? How can I either give more value to the people I serve or how can I serve more people? And the money comes by itself. That's all you've got to focus on. Funny, talking about the executive assistants and the people behind the people that uh, a lot of times, one of my favorite things to do, it's kind of a quirk, is when I get a new book, I like to flip to the acknowledgement page. Because I know, being someone that's been behind a lot of these folks for a long time, I know what it takes to actually pull off what these these people do. I'm curious if there this this wasn't a scripted question. I'm just curious who in in your life really uh, has helped you get where you are. Oh, we don't have enough time left for me to give you the list. I I, I believe that 100. percent Yeah, absolutely. So um, I wish we could keep going because there's this book I didn't even cover half of the notes of uh of uh what i wanted to talk about this so my suggestion to the, the people that are listening to our conversation is that they pick pick up your book thou shall prosper it's everywhere it's on amazon it's on your i'm sure it's on your website um, anywhere you can buy books you can get this book and it's not like the other business books that you maybe read before it's completely different it's really really exciting how it takes away the guilt for some reason, we have it that running a business isn't a positive thing and that we uh, the only justification for making more money is so that you can give more of it away. When, when you make money, it's because you're helping people and you're creating value and you are helping other people. And it's even worse than that, James, because people don't even realize subconsciously how much they are handicapped by the feelings of guilt. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's an inability to ask for a raise. It's in an, an inability to state your price. It, there are all kinds of of handicaps that come from suffering from this lack of understanding that making money is a dignified and moral occupation. The bottom line is that nobody can succeed at doing anything that deep in your heart you consider to be morally reprehensible. And so. For for folks that are listening to this and they're just a hundred percent on uh, the page same page as us, where can they learn more about you? And um, what else would you like to share with them before we wrap up? We'll get together again, I hope, James, because there's many many more things for us to talk about. I want to hear more about your work, uh, so we must do this again. But um, uh, we having just touched the surface, I'd say that people should have a look at my website, and uh, it's rabbidaniellappin.com. But I've made it a little bit easier. I wanted to make it a, uh, something that, that would people would perhaps 
be able to spell without any problem. And so it's youneedarabbi.com. <laughs> youneedarabbi.com. What a great idea. And so there you'll, you'll see a lot of the resources because the, the fact is that um, what I'm talking about is not little tricks. I'm talking about an entire change in financial outlook, which is an absolute prerequisite for changing your financial destiny. The rule is that if you do not want tomorrow to be like yesterday, you got to do something different today. And so uh, at my website, I have many resources that focus on the five, one of the five Fs, uh, particularly finance, because, you know, if there's no bread, well, it's pretty hard to get onto any of the other things. So a tremendous emphasis on not making the mistakes, because the sad reality is, and you got to acknowledge this, that in 97.7% of the cases, financial stress today is the result of mistakes you made yesterday. It's nobody else's fault. The villain is the, na- is the person whose name is on your driving license. That's the guy who caused you the problems. And so now it's not too late to, to stop making those mistakes and start doing things that are right in order to increase your revenue. I mean, you know, there's lots of wonderful material on how to invest. And Dave Ramsey is the best man in the whole world to help you get out of debt. But when it comes to increasing your income, you better talk to me. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. And I am going to take you up on your offer to continue our conversations because uh, I enjoy talking with you. You are a, a fantastic blessing. I'm so grateful to God that you are here and you're helping me and everyone else that is uh, paying attention to what your work is doing. So thank you so much for coming on to the show today. You're most welcome. And uh, God bless your efforts and those of everybody who listens to you and is trying to improve their own lives as well. Look forward to doing this again, James. Thank you.